This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends new cartridges before you run out. So you never have to think about ink. For details, visit hp.com slash instant ink Spotify. Conditions apply. Chapter Tactics. This is your 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game, though for this month it is at the Las Vegas Open level. Yes, that is a new level of playing 40k that I have achieved, but only briefly once for one roll when I rolled a six to seize on someone and then they quit. <laughs> Other than that, I've never played at the LVO level. However, I did bring three high caliber players. Well, two and a half high caliber players <laughs> to onto the show who've played at the LVO or similar events so that we could talk about terrain. That's right. This is the episode where we break down the Las Vegas Open terrain, the new Frontline Gaming announced terrain layouts for the top 100 tables, as well as answering questions like, what is a magic box? How many pieces of ruins should I look out for? What on earth are the GW rules for ruins, what is the plan there, and all of that good stuff. So, with me I have the LVO reigning champion, ITC champion, Mr. Brandon Grant. Thanks for having me on. Uh, of course I have the one, the only, abuse puppy, Mr. Sean. It's this guy. And finally, I have the man, the myth, the half-legend, Mr. <laughs> Reese Robbins. Hey, I'll take it halfway there, baby. <laughs> so, uh, if you're the first time listening to the show, uh, this is a competitive 40K-focused podcast. Uh, this month, we are running down the Las Vegas Open. We're going to talk about all sorts of good stuff on the Frontline Gaming Network, including player profiles, player interviews, key statistics, tips, tricks, meta lists, and so much more. So sign on to the Frontline Gaming Network where you can listen to all of that good content. Also, if you're one of those 40k philanthropists and you like what we do here at Chapter Tactics, uh, consider subscribing on our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Chapter Tactics. Patrons get access to exclusive Facebook groups and also exclusive content. We have actually one uh, episode, a bonus episode for the patrons coming out right now. It's an episode where I pulled Mr. Jim Vessel and Mr. Colin Sherman to talk about Eldar and the Chaos factions and where they stand in the overall LVO meta. And um, I think some of the stuff that they talk about will really surprise you. Uh, one quote that stuck with me since the recording of that episode is, Colin said that if Space Marines were getting nerfed into the ground tomorrow, uh, we would have just as a problem with Eldar, Craft World Eldar, as we do with Space Marines now. Meaning that Eldar are clearly, according to him, the second best faction. So whether you agree or not, you should consider listening to that episode. It will go up and air 
for the public later on this week. However, the patrons get a little early access to it for a few days, and it's a really good episode. So check that out when it comes out, or you can sign up for the Patreon to get that now. Also, if you're interested in some gaming mats, if you're looking at the community stream or any of the multiple streams we're having at the Las Vegas Open, and you see cool terrain, mats, products, you can actually probably check them out at FrontlineGaming.org, your one-stop shop, one shop for all tabletop goodies and more. All right, boss, how did I do? That was really good, buddy. <laughs> Those so improv all... classes are paying off, man. I like it. <laughs> that was all... <laughs> Not a single note written. All of that was improvised. I've never worked for this company before in my life. All right. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, go ahead and jump right into kind of the introduction to this topic. Uh, it's definitely the hot buzz, uh, and I, I want to get recent on this early. And that's the introduction of the top 100 tables um, and the standardized terrain for those tables. Uh, to for anyone who maybe hasn't seen the news yet, Reese, uh, what is the top 100 tables what what is the reason behind that decision what is the the decision to do that Uh, and then just kind of give everyone just a basic rundown yeah of course so the lvo um kind of give you like a a, a thirty thousand feet above we've always striven to be a combination of highly competitive tournament but also a really accessible fun and good looking tournament because ultimately this isn't just chess it's uh it's model railroad chess right and the way it looks is really important so we've tried to strike a balance between all those things um the 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 competitive community is is where my heart is at but it's the smallest portion of a small community so if you only service that community you're limiting yourself Um, that's why we've always striven to have really pretty terrain on top of everything else Uh, but the competitive community and, and being the largest competitive event in the world, um, we do want to serve them as well. And one of the, the requests we had gotten was to have more standardization in terrain, which for the more competitive crowd is typically what they want uh, because it removes some of the variables from the equation of how do I, how do I solve this? How do, how do I maximize my odds of, odds of victory? So we looked at what terrain set do we have the most of, and we had one set where there was a hundred iterations of that terrain. So naturally that made the most sense with an event that has over a thousand players registered, um, that we were going to lean into that terrain set to be the, the one that we were going to try and standardize. So we let some, um, some of the top players out there, uh, try it out in a competitive setting. And the feedback they gave us was it's great, except for in one or two deployments, the, the terrain layout doesn't give you enough cover. And if you find yourself in a matchup versus shooty space Marines or Tau, um, even shooty Eldar, and you go second, you don't have enough places to hide and it's not fun. It could be game deciding to a very high degree right on the first turn. So we took that to heart and we started messing around with it. And um, I started taking pictures of different terrain layouts and I was like, trying to decide which one was the best. And I was like, well, they're all better in different scenarios. Why don't we just make it so that it morphs depending on the the terrain layout? And we decided to run with it. I bounced the idea off of all the people that I, their opinion I trust. And pretty much everybody was like, yeah, we really like it. That's a good idea. It makes sense. Uh, so then we used Mariana's magical Photoshop skills and uh, a lot of trial and error to get the pictures correct 
uh, for the, ter the terrain layouts for the deployment types to hopefully um, give optimal coverage no matter what um, deployment that you roll. And um, we tried it out in a lot of different scenarios with as much time as we were able to use. And I think it's going to work. Obviously, it's probably going to be improved after this um, first iteration in the wild. But I think it's I think it's an obviously pretty good idea. And it strikes a balance between uh, variety, aesthetically pleasing, and also being uh, as close to optimized for competitive play as possible. So uh, hopefully we hit the mark. And just to uh, kind of be clear here for people who may have not have seen the, the new release or announcement or any of that yet, that means that for each of the six deployment zones that you can potentially roll, you will set up the terrain differently? Yep. So uh, if you want to check it out, you can go over to frontlinegaming.org and take a look at all the images. And then for those 100 tables, there'll be a handout that shows you what to do. And uh, let's say you rolled Dawn of War. That means you organize the terrain in a specific fashion um, that will be optimized, in our opinion, for Dawn of War. If you roll pointy Dawn of War, uh, as it's called, I can never, I think it's called Frontline Assault, but um, <laughs> uh, that's a different layout because there's different needs, right? Like uh, that, the, the issue was with the standardized um, layout, it was insufficient for some uh, deployment types. That makes a lot of sense to me. The only thing I'd ask is top 100 tables. Obviously, round one, everyone has the same ranking. So at what round number should we begin to expect to see this terrain implemented? So with normal attrition, at, uh, at the LVO, we've typically been seeing in the last couple of years, it's weird, it used to always be 10%. But with the bigger events, we've been seeing closer to 20% attrition. So I think it's been, it's always in flux. I think we're at like 1,020 or 1,010 uh, registered players. We're expecting 800 to like 850 um, in that range, maybe even a little bit below that, like 740, 780, 770, something like that. So assuming that we hit 800 players that show up and roll dice, by round three, all the undefeated players will be playing on this terrain for the rest of the tournament. Well, that makes sense to me. and. Um... In addition, I actually did get some practice games in using this terrain uh, yesterday, Sunday, because this was announced, what, Saturday evening? And um, funnily enough, I also had a practice game or two on Saturday without using this. And I'll say on Saturday, it felt like the players, because it was a practice game, we would roll up the terrain, and then we would adjust the terrain so it would be sort of fair for that terrain deployment. And then we would decide, you know, roll off and see who gets what side and so on and so on. So the fact that for the top 100, that's exactly how the terrain is being deployed, particularly with the vagaries of a tournament terrain where people nudge the terrain around all the time just to fit their model carrying trays on the board or water bottles or whatever it is. So terrain does tend to migrate over the course of a tournament. So having it at least for the top 100 where it's like, no. You have this deployment, this is how the terrain is going to be, is actually super refreshing in my opinion, because the day, the games that I had on Sunday, just that one strategically placed L-shaped piece of terrain for each map being in exactly the right location for the deployment zone made a huge difference in making sure that, okay, um, 
each player has a reasonable amount of line of sight blocking terrain to take advantage of in their deployment zone. So my opponent's Thunderfire cannons always had a good place to hide. Um, for example, I mean, my Basilisks that I was trying out, those never have a good place to hide, but that's a different yeah. issue. <laughs> but it felt, to me, it felt extremely fair to have the terrain set up like this. And normally a, a, a change that's this close to the deadline for list submission, I would caution against. But having tried it out, I am definitely a fan. It feels very fair. Yeah, I think guaranteeing that you're going to have some kind of line-of-sight blocking terrain to shield your deployment zone is really critical. Because there's so many armies that just live off of that kind of like, well, I need to be able to hide this unit. Um, and knowing you'll be able to do that is a huge relief for a lot of them. It makes a really big difference in like just making the game playable, basically. Yeah, I agree. And that, that was why we felt comfortable making this change because we we did have one person complain they're like hey how can you make a change like this so close to the event and i was like hey fair Ooh. enough i was expecting this i was expecting more of it frankly i was like but what if we had instead had six different tables with set terrain and set deployment and if you just walked up to the table and you it was like oh for the top 100 we chose to do this i was like you probably wouldn't even bat an eye you would just yeah. walk up and go oh this is the terrain and oh it makes sense that it's optimized for the deployment type instead of getting uh you know screwed really like when you roll up a bad deployment on a set terrain type and then you go mm -hmm. second and your opponent's triptide you know annihilates half your army this mm -hmm. should be much less likely to occur in this scenario so like brandon said it's just making it hopefully more fair and that's why almost everybody embraced it like i said we literally had one complaint so doing something this close to the event we had to be really confident that it was a good call. Um, and it, the feedback has been almost overwhelmingly positive. The only other complaint we had was a player who was like, I'm more casual. This seems like a good idea. Why didn't you do it for all the other terrain sets? And my response mm -hmm. was, we simply didn't have time to do it. Yeah. yeah you, you would need 500, you know, assuming you have to assume that everyone might show up potentially. So you, having 500 sets of the exact same terrain um, is well, very we, difficult. You could do it for all the different terrain types that we have, and my goal is to do that. But we have like a dozen different table layouts, and it took yeah. a it took Mariana and I the better part of like it took like five six hours to get that mm -hmm. done. It's not as easy as you would think because yeah. you set it up and then you take the picture and then you put the overlay of the deployment over it, and everything's like slightly wrong, and you're like God. <laughs> So you yeah. have to go back and do it again, or she has to Photoshop it and move it around. So uh, it, it's more complex to get that accurate than you would think. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, another thing I like uh, about this specific thing is it feels like the next iteration in in top 40k tournament play. Right? Um, we already we've already seen standardized terrain in uh, the Nova missions um, at the Nova tournament. We have also already seen where you can eliminate deployments as well. Uh, so two people eliminate. So you already see agency in the deployment process. Um, and I feel like this adds, and combined with the other two, can really add a, a layer of professionalism to 40k events that I'm really excited for. Uh, one question I had for you, Reese, was will the stream table also be uh, the same style? It won't be exactly the same. And I know there's going to be people that are going to be... Um 
slightly to moderately upset about that, but the, the reason is uh, for the stream table because Games Workshop is flying out all their staff and equipment to come and help stream the event. Um, we use GW Terrain. So mm -hmm. I am doing my utmost to make it as close as possible in terms of shape, like profile, line of sight, uh, coverage, um, rules, like what it does. And it will morph along with the deployment types, but there is going to be some slight differences from the GW table to the rest of the tables. We're going to get it as close as we can, but it's not possible because it's literally it's different stuff, but yeah. it, it'll be close. So having played last year on the GW table on stream three games in a row, I can say that their terrain is very different. Uh, for one thing, is it still going to be that city fight um, tile map that's two by two tiles? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is the realm of, realm battle. of battle. The realm um, of battle board, because board, that yeah. battle board looks really cool on stream. It mm -hmm. looks amazing. But yeah. placing over 100 plastic models flat on that <laughs> battle board yeah. is impossible in a timely <laughs> manner. FLG um, mats. Because it's not like the mats. It's actually got texture to it. Yeah. yeah. Um, so small models like to tip over very easily on it, which is kind of painful. So and there's then, anything on a flying stand. Um, yeah, they can't put our mats on the stream for obvious reasons, right? And then, like, sure. <laughs> there's also the issue of the crane. Oh, man. The, mm. the, the crane piece of terrain, first of all, is not glued together. And second oh, of yeah. all, we'll catch... Uh, elbows, wrists, uh, sleeves, um, just your shirt when you're leaning over. So that crane, I got, I, I destroyed that crane repeatedly. I think in the last <laughs> game we just took it off the board preemptively. Um, but like, beyond so that, Brandon, beyond the, what I'm hearing is more cranes, all, mm -hmm. all cranes. There needs to be a crane in every corner of the board, so no matter where I go, I'm going to snag it. And then There's... when it falls, it's going to fall and smash all my models. Perfect. And I'm going to have to guess where they used to be, because they'll just scatter all over the realm of battle board that every time the crane falls on them. I, yeah, I think originally you have to sign up for a... someone's Patreon <laughs> to get access to that level of tech. <laughs> Yeah, we were originally going to talk into them. They didn't. They kind of wanted to keep it a secret, but they're actually going to have a crane above the battlefield that will lower down and grab Brandon any time he tries to move a model. Yeah. It's, He's also going to be playing really on a crane. We're oh. going to suspend him over the LVO, playing whoever, you, and then the loser <laughs> has to dive bomb off of it into a crowd of jellyfish. I don't know. <laughs> it could be like the game you play where you get the little like uh, beanie babies with the at the arcade with the little grabber claw. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If someone yeah. Uh, if someone donates enough on Twitch, you could actually remove someone's models from the table with the claw <laughs> with the crane. <laughs> no, that that's not a thing. I'm I'm kidding. <laughs> but but it could be. It could be. <laughs> it's it's definitely a very pretty board for a stream. But those mm -hmm. little, I don't know, idiosyncrasies. They make it, let's call it a joy to play on. Um, and then Experience. The fact that the terrain is always set up the same way. Uh, so they try and set it up in a way no, where no matter what deployment type, it's so, sort of fair. Which means that there's a great big L-shaped ruin in the exact center of the board. Because no matter what deployment type, there's a line of sight blocking piece of terrain in the middle of the board. Which, 
kind of means, number one, if you have flyers, you don't care about it because you just fly up halfway up the board and now you see into it, uh, number one. Number two, it means if you don't have the infantry keyword, good luck getting around it. Um, so, I don't know. It felt like a fair board, but it also felt like, huh, this is kind of different from the standard tables on the other tables. So, because typically each deployment zone, like the way we agreed are going to be in the top 100, each deployment zone tries to have its own L-shape or line of sight blocking thing that players can deploy in to hide. But on the GW stream board last year, both players did usually have a thing to hide in, but not always, because there were also the crate piles, like the hills that were made of crates. And if those had been the deployment zones, um, oof, that would have been... Um, that would have been very rough, to say the this least. Sounds like an, this sounds like an entire episode of Chapter Tactics. Brandon has played so many games on stream that he can <laughs> talk just about tactics on the GW terrain on stream. But I, I get it. It's exactly what Reese was talking about, where it's GW wants a stream table that looks good. Mission accomplished. They've done that. Their Realm of Battle board looks fantastic. Um, but then it's harder to move the models around because everything has texture instead of the mats. Oh, well, that's the player's problems, not the viewer's, number one. Number two, Reese was running into this issue of, well, I guess if we just deploy Vanguard Strike, the terrain is terrible, but all the other deployments, it works. Um, well, then the players, of course, are going to roll that piece of terrain, and it's going to be two shooty lists, and the one that goes first wins. That's going to be a boring LVO final. Right. That That's yeah. what we want to avoid. And we don't want to spoil someone's experience, right? It's like right. It's expensive to come for most people. Uh, we got people coming from Australia, from Norway, from uh, Asia, and it's like you don't want someone to show up, roll a crummy deployment, and go, "Son of a bee!" Like that's it. <laughs> that's, that's that's my that's my run here because I can't hide. And that was mm -hmm. why we decided to 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 roll out this change. Yeah. So let's go ahead and talk about specifically the changes now. <clears throat> so uh, everyone who has the link, and of course uh, to everyone listening on YouTube and on Frontline Gaming. I will, of course, include a link to this as well. So if you can't find it on the FrontlineGaming.org website, uh, there will be a link in the description for YouTube and for uh, the FLG blog for this podcast episode. So check that out. Click on that link. Uh, this is now your warning to click on that link so you can follow along because from here on, we're going to be talking about the six deployment maps. Uh, and Brandon and Sean are going to kind of take a critical top player's eye to each map and um, figure out how they'll play on it, what the map kind of means, maybe give it a grade or not, and all of that good stuff. All right. So uh, are you all, do you all have it up now, pulled up the image? Mm -hmm. Perfect. So first glance, without looking at the deployment zone and without looking at this layout, uh, just looking at the terrain itself, what do you think about this terrain uh, for a layout for a tournament? Sort of like across all of the different variations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's two large L-shaped runes, and those are large uh, GW rune L-shaped runes. By the way, they're not the little rinky-dink uh, single level. Uh, they're they're big. Uh, there's two L-shaped runes, four large hills or walls, as I like to call them. Two mm -hmm. barricades, two pieces of area terrain, and two forests. And that that is it. That's the terrain there. So I, one, one thing stands out yeah. first that I think we haven't addressed yet. None of these tables have fully enclosed ruins. Yeah. Yes. That was what I was going to say also. Like, would that you is like your, to, your single big point. 
which I'm going to throw out the reason why, because I've been seeing some really hilarious suppositions online. Well, I, yes, yeah. please. So it's been hilarious to see people speculate as to why. It's a super duper simple answer. I would love to put four enclosed ruins on each one of these tables or two at the least. Uh, I don't have them, right? When you're dealing with the scale of this size of event, um, adding one piece of terrain, adding any number of pieces of terrain is times 100 for this many tables. Mm-hmm. So, you know, acquiring, building, painting times you know, X times 100 of anything is a daunting task. And with the move and everything else, it just wasn't realistic. Had we more time, um, we would have done it. So it's not like a, it wasn't a tactical choice. Like, Oh, secretly, we don't really like, you know, enclosed ruins. I think they're really good for the game. Uh, when used, um, when it's not overwhelming, but, um, we, we just didn't have access to them for these tables. That it's that simple. And and that is what the Illuminati paid you to say is is that what I'm hearing here? Uh, well, the, the, the secret other part 40k of it, Illuminati the, 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 that runs the world. Yeah, oh yeah, the gamer Illuminati, the Draco Reptilian uh-huh. Alliance. Uh, mm-hmm. The other part of it is that as a design, as an aesthetic choice, we don't mix MDF terrain with uh, GW terrain, generally speaking, because it mm-hmm. the, the 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 aesthetics of them clash quite a bit. It looks weird when they're on the table together. So that that's another part of it is that um, we don't have a ruin or an enclosed ruin that would really look good yet. Uh, that's part of the reason. Oh, perfect. Yeah. All right. So, uh, what are your thoughts on the four the four hills, Brandon and Sean? The four hills, the two L shaped ruins. Just the the is it too much terrain? Too little. Um, so for, for the top 100, go ahead. If we're talking about the hills, first of all, it's important to note, hills actually do provide a cover save as long as the model mm-hmm. is both touching the hill and 50% or more obscured by the terrain or models. So you can get a cover save from it, but for infantry, it's very difficult because they all have to touch it. But yeah. for vehicles, as long as a piece of the model is touching the hill and it's obscured, you do get a cover save. So the hills are, number one, easily going to give a lot of vehicles and monsters in the game a cover save because Mm -hmm. they're tall. But number two, depending on how tall those hills are, can be very centralizing in the meta. So for example, the regular crates are tall enough to hide uh, a Space Marine aggressor or a Centurion, but they are not tall enough to hide um, a Layman Rust battle tank from anything in the game even infantry height. So they're good for hiding infantry models, but they're not good for hiding anything else. And they're good for obscuring vehicles, but they're not good for hiding vehicles. So if the hills are crate height or shorter, um, the current meta of shooting just won't care. There's a lot of ignores cover out there, number one. Uh, and number two, there's a lot of firepower um, that just has a high enough AP that your cover doesn't matter anyway. So if the hills are as pictured on the frontline article, where they're taller than a Redemptor Dreadnought, I think that these things can work, because Imperial Knights are stupidly tall, and they're going to see over everything, for the most part, anyway, that they get close enough to. But that's totally fine. They're a titanic, super heavy walker 
they're supposed to be tall enough to see everything. But it also means that in return, they also can't hide. So that's fine. It's balanced. Um, but I have played on tables at events, even ITC frontline organized events, where all of the hills were the size of crates. And mm. <laughs> when you have models that are taller than crates, it means that none of those models get to hide, and now you're in trouble. So if at least the hills are as tall as the hills in this image, then I'm totally fine with it. And practicing with hills that, that were that tall, you can't hide much. And oftentimes, what you can hide, you can only hide from parts of the board, not the whole board. So it feels very balanced. It feels like you have to control parts of the board if you want to hide certain models from your opponent's shooting so that they can't reach the parts of the board that they can see your models from. Yeah. So that's actually a strategic game of 40k as opposed to, you can't see this at all. Nice try. And with the way the L shapes have been placed, yes, the L shapes provide the most hiding from line of sight. But they're also placed at the front of the deployment zone, which means if you want to protect your units that are hiding in there, either you need to be able to outpunch your opponent or you need to go over to your opponent's deployment zone and get into their ruin somehow. Like, you can't just hide in your ruin or... Here's another way of putting it. If your opponent's trying to hide their amazing shooting units out of line of sight in their L-shape, they also still have to be aware of your melee units because they have to be right at the front of their deployment zone in order to use the L to full effect. So it seems balanced that way. It's like, yes, you can be out of line of sight from my shooting, but now my melee assault is going to be really close to you. So, yeah. yeah. And I actually, I actually like the, I think the most dynamic games of 40k I've ever played uh, were ones where ruins were located in each player's deployment zone. However, they were close to the deployment edge, close enough so that you couldn't castle easily in them. And it, it did leave for a lot more dynamic games uh, that favored more balanced armies or armies that were a little more on the melee focused side. Although right now, <clears throat> in general, it's it's a shooting it's a shooting gallery uh, in terms of the top lists. A lot of the lists try to shoot, um, and melee is a little farther behind um, than normal, especially compared to other parts of Eighth Edition, like when Blood Angels really dominated and stuff. So I like that. I like the and if you look at every deployment zone. With the exception of one, which doesn't have any L-shaped ruins in either deployment zone, which we'll, t we'll get to in a moment, uh, the the L-shaped ruin is as close to the deployment edge as it possibly can be uh, without actually being off of the deployment zone, which which is cool. Mm -hmm. And very it's, intentional. Yeah. It's also worth noting that uh, none of the deployment zones have a like large central line of sight blocking piece uh, that kind of clogs up the middle of the table. So there is more interactivity between the players, and you can't just sort of like drop a big block of centurions or grotesques or whatever in the middle and threaten basically the entire table with it uh you've kind of got to be like looking at where you can move to and where your opponent is going to move yeah and, and the only kind of exception and i have a hard time calling even an exception to that is the the dawn of war deployment one so that's number that's the sixth one that's the yeah. one where the two l-shaped ruins are in the center of the board um so I normally I agree with you 100%, Sean. Uh, I I like I like not having anything in the center for a large or strong unit to dominate and over bully the entire army. However, when you get this kind of weird square shape here, when you have two L shapes and then two pieces of terrain, in this case it's two containers, uh, north to south on this deployment zone, you mm -hmm. do kind of get a 
very contentious no man's land here where there's not a lot of uh, line of sight paths into that area and then it can be pivotal because both of those ruins are are they look like they're nine to six inches away from the center of the board so you can charge into either ruin and threaten both of them from the center of the board that would be i don't even want to call it an exception but that would be something i would look at if i were specifically on that map yeah it's definitely more true there than any of the others where you do have this sort of central defended zone um but there are line of sight into that from your deployment zone um so it's not as though you don't get to shoot into it at all which is really the big problem when you just you can't legally shoot because it is that enclosed ruin or whatever that's where it becomes really problematic Uh, so let's go ahead and talk about this uh with i we'll go back to the first one um so with this one sean and brandon let's say you roll up you roll uh number one which is pointy hammer anvil you get up, you get to this deployment zone, and then uh, I understand that every mission, the objective markers are placed differently, uh, mm-hmm. but just kind of just kind of assume that you don't know what objective markers they are yet. Maybe you haven't rolled for them yet, uh, and you're just kind of trying to figure out uh, what you want. Uh, I, I imagine you wouldn't pick, you wouldn't have a preference for sides, uh, but how would you go about setting up your army on this? What armies do you think this favors or doesn't favor, and uh, specifically as it pertains to your list? as well can, can i interject really quick Papa? oh sure of yeah, course. go ahead reese just just to, to brandon's point to how tall are they all of the hills are four and so there's like a select slightly smaller amount that are five inches they're all four to five inches tall most most of them are four inches tall which for reference is uh, a land raider easily hides behind a four inch tall hill yeah that's been my experience with them as well that <clears throat> Generally, you can hide a vehicle behind them, although you'll struggle to hide infantry just because of the nature of squads. The the only thing that doesn't hide behind them is very big monsters, knights, and flyers. In my in my experience. Mm-hmm. Well, this is excellent oh. news. <laughs> so yeah, let's get back. They're quite tall. Yeah. Let's get back. What was the next topic? Uh, so what? what what would you? How would you look at? So we're on the first map, which is Pointy Hammer Anvil. Uh, in the link, what? How would you look at this from a tactical point of view for in terms of deployment uh, for your army? Uh, what side would you pick, if any? Uh, how would you want to deploy your army in a perfect scenario? Uh, what armies do you think this this kind of layout kind of uh, helps out or hurts? Um. So, for one thing, if you're an assault army, this is actually really solid for you. Like, mm-hmm. first of all, um. Your opponent is 18 inches away at their deployment zone tip, and you're three inches closer at the front of your deployment zone than you would have been, and you have a huge L perfectly placed at the front of your deployment zone, so you can pretty much hide all your griblies as close as possible to your opponent, and your opponent, even if they go first, won't be able to see them. That's enormous. So Mm -hmm. if you are an assault army facing a shooting army on this deployment, this is great news for you. for the most part, I think. I would say it's great news for turn one. Once you're out of that deployment zone, you don't have a lot of places to hide that aren't going to be like way away from where your opponent actually wants to sit. Uh, because that whole middle of the board, I won't say it's completely open, but you don't have a lot that's going to like completely shield you. Yep. Um, so 
you're going to have, you're just going to be untouched on turn one, but as soon as you pop out and start doing work, you're going to get chewed up. You got to right. wrap them up. You yeah. got to wrap them up, baby. Yeah. It's <laughs> so true. That's, that's why you're... the cargo containers are angled the way that they are. It's like allows you to move through them. And infantry mm-hmm. models, as they pass through the, the gauntlet, uh, will be protected on their flanks if you position your models correctly. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Now, the nice part about the crates, too, is they also slow down Imperial Knights and their yes. equivalents, which makes them navigating the center super easy to block with infantry. It's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. I'm just going to throw my five scouts in this one little gap, and now you have to go around, or you have to spend three inches up, three inches down, which also slows you down. Yeah. So, but the way I feel like these L's are going to be used is you can, if you're the melee aggressor, keep one unit in the L shape the whole game and any of the middle objectives, like um, if it had been in the exact center or in the north or south positions, if we're looking in a left-right orientation, the um, middle objectives, you can just harass all of those just from your L shape where it's like, oh, your opponent's contesting that objective? I'm going to jump out and eat them. And especially if they're contesting with infantry, I'm going to jump out, wrap them, and then kill them during my opponent's turn and keep pushing. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like this map is actually favoring a melee army pretty nicely. Um, but also, if you're two shooting armies facing each other, going f- first or second doesn't have as big an impact on the game as it would have. Because, again, you're not going to be able to hide everything, but you're going to be able to hide some of your more important units from a traditional you, shooting list. You, the, I, I'm happy to hear you guys say this, because this is mirroring all the these were all the ideas I had. I was like, Oh, hopefully this works out this way. And hearing you guys say it is, it's really, it feels good. But um, the other part too, is don't forget um, you can deploy models on top of the levels of the ruins. So if it's, if it's a shootout at the okay corral between two shooting armies, you can be ultra aggressive and put all your models in a good firing position if you want to risk it. Um, But like you said, melee armies, they're only 18 inches apart and most melee really good melee units in the game now can cover that distance reliably quite easily. So it's risk reward. Do I, do I, do I deploy aggressively and risk getting uh, wrapped up or not? So I, I'm, I'm really curious to see how some of you, the top level players like you guys handle this, uh, this equation. So yeah, if you want to hide something towards the back um, that isn't just relying entirely on range, you're going to, you're going to have a little bit more, scant cover to protect you which you know it there's going to be a advantage and disadvantage to every deployment zone but it's certainly something to be aware of in this one uh that you really you only have like one place to hide basically and you have to choose whether or not you can make use of that perfect um i actually completely lost my train of thought because of all that (laughs) Uh, that's okay we can get a new train (laughs) oh so uh Moving on to uh, kind of uh, what what I wanted to talk about about this specific uh, map was with the terrain piece. This is a question for Reese. Uh, with the terrain piece on the right, if you look at it, it has some disadvantages to the one on the left uh, because it has those pillars sticking out. And you have it here marked uh, as the pillars being within the deployment edge. And what that essentially means is that if you want to line up your army, your melee army on the line, so to speak, uh, the person on the right side of the deployment zone will line up their models outside of cover or in line of sight. Uh, whereas on the left, 
you wouldn't be able to. So as a, a player, do you have the agency to scoot that right building up further? Or if you have that building, or, or is that just the way it's going to be? Do you understand what I'm trying to, to say? It's, it's, it's a lot harder to explain. Uh, you'd have to visualize it. Reese. To, to visualize that a bit better, um, most of the ruins come with a base. Mm-hmm. So is it the corner of the line of sight blocking that sits at the front of your deployment zone? Or is it the corner of the base? Or is it the corner of the walls? So in the case of the terrain Pablo is talking about, the walls have flying buttresses, which are struts coming out of the walls. And those are placed at the corner of the deployment zone, not the wall that blocks line of sight. So which should it be? Should it be the flying buttresses that you can't hide behind necessarily? Or should it be the corner of the line of sight blocking L is at the corner of the deployment zone? And we actually yeah. we actually had Reese uh, drop. Uh, so we he will have to answer that question when he comes back in. Uh, but we will trudge along and go to the second map. Uh, this is my least favorite map to play on. Vanguard... <laughs> Now, every, everyone assault. hates Vanguard. I'm not really sure why. Now, the thing is, Vanguard is actually, I think, the most balanced deployment map in the game. Huh. But um, on the previous question, if I were to speculate, if it was just me and my opponent, I would say uh, to make it the most fair, you should place the terrain so that both sides get the same advantage. And to your point, Pablo, the ter- mm. currently the terrain is not placed that way. So I would just place both of them with the L as close to the correct position at, or the same position as possible because the yeah, l is yeah, the, the most important part the of the piece of terrain yeah. yeah and i would imagine i would imagine that that's how most people would handle it however if you were at the las vegas open uh and we don't have if we don't get an official word from reese um just uh talk to it's always important to talk to a judge call a judge and, and have them figure everything out too so if you and your opponent uh are looking at this particular picture your opponent swears that the the right piece is where it should be, and that would mean that it has a disadvantage for you. Call a judge over, see how the judge is, see how the judge, um, you know, rules everything, and then that's that. Uh, hmm. Reese is uh, asking for a uh, link again to the <laughs> recording software. So then send that over to him. And so, uh, it's always important to call a judge, like I said. So that's but- basically where it's at. Go ahead, Brandon. So moving on to why I think Vanguard Strike is the most balanced. Um, Mm -hmm. First of all, the front is very wide. There's plenty of room for flanking maneuvers. Um, You're 24 inches across uh, distance across the board. And both players also have deep parts of their deployment zone. So you need to screen a wide frontage, but you have a reasonable amount of depth if you want to hide models. So it's yeah. kind of like the best of both worlds. Like if you're an assault army, it's easy to find a weakness in your opponent's deployment. But if you're a shooty army, it's easy to keep your long range shooting all the way in the corner of your deployment zone if you want it to be there. Yeah, the the combination of a wide front and a deep deployment zone is, I think, something a lot of players underestimate. Because uh, both of those are really important attributes to have if you're trying to take advantage of certain kinds of units and ranges. What do you guys... Okay, so every time I play on Vanguard Strike, it's it, it goes beyond it goes beyond the uh, simple measuring, um, you know, how much, how many inches? It's 37.5 inches or whatever on one side. Uh, but beyond that, 
um, well, how do you deal with people who front load one side? Uh, because I always feel like if you front load one of the narrow corners, specifically the longer edge corner, it gives you it does give you a very distinct advantage um, that I just personally don't like um, because it essentially makes it so that you play in one quadrant almost um, if you front load one side. And in Vanguard Strike, it usually feels like it's a little easier to do. Okay, Reese, I noticed you're back. Yo. Welcome back. Uh, I hope that corn didn't take you for too long. <laughs> so we, uh, I don't, I don't know what the last thing you heard was essentially we had a question about um, kind of the fairness of the first uh, image, the first deployment zone, which is the pointy hammer and anvil. And uh, basically Brandon, actually you did a much better job explaining it than I did. Would you mind explaining it again uh, to maybe have Reese clarify that and, and put that question to red rest? Sure. So I'm looking at the image now and if you're listening, maybe it's a good idea to follow along. Uh, one of the pieces of terrain, well, both pieces of terrain uh, for the L-shaped ruins are on bases. And this is typical. Uh, and the bases are not the same shape. Um, and it looks like one piece of terrain is aligned so that the corner of the line of sight blocking of the terrain is at the very corner of the deployment zone. So you can fit all your models at the front of your deployment zone and out of line of sight. The other one has been aligned so that there are struts or flying buttresses coming out of the walls. They don't block line of sight. And that has been aligned to the front of the deployment zone. So you're losing about two or three inches of deployment space that doesn't have line of sight blocking in one deployment zone than you're not in the other. So the way I told Pablo I'd resolve it is it's intended to be somewhat equal. So yes, the terrain's not going to be identical. That's not possible. Um, not in an event this big anyway. So I would have aligned the farthest forward point of the L with the front of the deployment zone so that both sides can deploy out of line of sight at the very farthest point of their deployment zone. Yes, and you're a gentleman and a scholar, Brandon, for noticing that. And then also describing the solution, uh, we put the caveat emptor in there that, you know, both players cooperatively put the terrain on the table to approximate the image and they both agree when they think they've gotten as close as they can and that they agree it's fair. Um, those images, like I said, it took us a lot of tries to get even remotely close to being laser beam accurate. Like another imperfection that you'll notice is one forest is slightly out of the deployment zone, <laughs> one slightly or, you know, all the way in. And that's just because of the angle of the photograph, right? So the players need to be reasonable in this and if they cannot come to um, a resolution that's what the judges are for and like you said uh, when I told Mariana like take it to the edge of the building well she did that right but then you and I know well that the edge of the building there is actually not perfectly aligned to what it should be so yeah I would recommend in this instance you nudge the building to the edge of the usable portion of the building okay all right. Uh, sorry, guys. I need to stop the recording here. I just um, we need to do an audio test real quick. I want to make sure that Reese can hear Brandon hmm. and Sean, and vice versa. Sean, can you yep, hear? Yep, he's Reese? been coming through good for me. Okay. Did you hear that, Reese? I sure yeah. did. Okay. Uh, I do need to reload the page. Uh, Cast is telling me reload the page. Um, I I might kick everyone out if that does. Okay. No problem. Okay, so uh, now that now that we kind of had that burning question answered and out of the way, uh, I want to talk about some generalities about these maps. Uh, the first five maps are all relatively equal, in my opinion. They all have an L-shaped ruin in their deployment zone. They have 
a hill, a large hill in the deployment zone, and then it varies a little bit from there. But for the most part, they're pretty equal. However, the United War deployment does not. It has two L shapes in the middle. So, in general, when you're looking to take over the middle of the board and you're looking to take over objectives in No Man's Land, Brandon and Sean, and Reese too, uh, what kind of terrain do you like having in the board? Uh, in the center of the board, and what kind of terrain do you not like having in the center of the board? And also, I have a burning question about area terrain. I've always find that it's pretty mostly useless. Uh, how, how? What are your guys' opinions on that uh, as well? Uh, well, at least regarding the, the area terrain thing, um, remember that forests and craters give that minus two to charge. Mm. It's it's not going to stop someone if they're right up on top of you, Except when it does, because, you know, sometimes they'll just roll that double ones and fail a charge from an inch away. Um, but it can make a big difference when your opponent is trying those longer charges and buy you that extra turn, maybe even two turns if you're really lucky. Um, so, yeah, it's not a lot of help against a shooting army just because of the way shooting works these days. But it certainly can make a difference in some situations. Okay. And the second half of that, how would you take over the middle? Yeah. Uh, that's surprisingly tough in these, just because um, you don't have the ability to just, like, duck in the middle and stay there completely protected. Um, I think it's going to vary a lot by army, uh, because different armies are going to have access to just wildly different tools for doing that. Um, but I think it's going to be fairly plausible if you have like a good countercharge unit to move a couple vehicles up into the center um, and take it with something that is going to be relatively resistant to shooting that is not going to go down easily, um, and then be prepared to charge your opponent if they send one of their big units in. Uh, because with the way these ruins are placed and whatnot, I think you're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, enemy hammer units kind of, like, tussling over the center in many cases. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely see that as well. Uh, Reese, when you designed these... Did you have any specific armies in mind, or uh, more specifically, did you have uh, limiting Space Marine shooting armies in mind when you deploy when you do these, or was it kind of just like a, you know, as fair as you could possibly make it scenario? Yeah, we were just trying to make it as fair as possible, and what was logical given the constraints of the deployment type. So, some of them, like pointy, excuse me, Dawn of War, you're, there's really not that much square footage to play with, right? Like, you can't fit the ruin anywhere other than the point of the spear, so to speak. So some of them kind of, mm -hmm. like, wrote themselves. And um, <clears throat> mission number six, that was, like, the standard deployment that we were basically going with, a variation of that. The hills were at angles. But that was, like, the standard map um, that we were playing with. And we found that in some deployment types, especially pointing down to war, it was really insufficient. So that was the, you know, it's number six on the list. It's just the way it was uploaded. That was the starting point of all of them. And they all kind of hmm. were a derivation off of that. Interesting. Okay. Now, I do think that if we're discussing controlling the middle in this one, yeah, yeah. It, it makes sense the way you deployed the terrain. But on this one, if you're a Raven Guard Assault Centurion player, 
this is like your dream deployment because you're going to infiltrate yeah. into that terrain and be just outside your opponent's deployment zone turn one when they're going first with stuff that they don't want to charge. So you're, it's going to allow you to control the middle of the board starting from the beginning of the game in a way that's very difficult to retaliate against with shooting. So, or if, you know, you're playing Gene Stealers or Chaos that's using Warp Time, um, any melee army is going to love this terrain. Because turn one, sure, you're going to have units that are visible, but then after turn one, it's like, cool, I'm controlling the middle of the board and you can't see me, now what? Yeah, the, the Dawn of War one definitely does feel like uh, going first is the big kingmaker here, um, which is kind of true for a lot of matchups anyways. Uh, but it does, if you go first um, with a melee army, you do have a significant advantage uh, depending on your opponent's shooting army. And also, so, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead, Brandon. So what I'll add is, if you're someone who has a lot of melee, really the best way to counter that is to have melee so that if your opponent goes first, and they fill in the L with their own nasty melee unit, you start within threat range of that ruin. So if they mm -hmm. actually walk into it, you're like, okay, well, my melee unit's going to charge in and eat you for breakfast now. So yeah. as long as you have a melee unit in your army, like just one, just a melee unit, you're still going to be fine if your opponent goes balls to the wall and tries to take over all the terrain in the center turn one with their melee units. Okay. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of charge and counter charge play in these terrain setups because they give you a lot of good hiding spaces, but they also give your opponent really easy charges when you are hiding on those places. Okay, and and what about for shooting armies? So we, we do have very specific high-powered shooting armies that we're going to be seeing, specifically Eldar shooting and Space Marine shooting. Uh, do you see any of these, any of those armies having a rough time on any of these deployment maps, or do you think they will still be king and the top armies to be uh, in, on the top 100 tables? Well, I still think that if you're an Eldar flyer spam list with the new plus one to vehicles traits where you just murder everything that's got the vehicle keyword, mm -hmm. then... Um, you're in good shape on every map because the lack of totally enclosed ruins means that there's literally no safe place on the board to hide from a flyer. So yeah. I feel like Colin might have been right. If you got rid of Space Marines, Eldar would just step into that gap instantly because of, uh, first of all, the Forge World flyer being 130-something points for yeah. what it does is <laughs> it's insane. crazy cheap. Um, and... Good job. We found the next thing to blow all your Forest World budget on. But um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like Eldar with the new Psychic Awakening traits are actually very strong. And the only reason they're not completely dominating is that Space Marines exist. Okay. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. Were there any other things about these, specifically the Top 100 Table terrain setup or anything like that, that any of you wanted to bring up? Or should we move on to the final topic of the episode? I think we can move along. I'm ready. Ours. I don't have... All yeah. right. So, Reese, we have these top 100 tables. However, there are potentially 400 other tables worth of terrain that people will have to play on uh, in at least round one and two. Uh, and Once you go undefeated, you'll probably be stuck on these top 100 tables until you lose, uh, which, let's be honest, most of the people there are going to lose uh, and have to play off of these tables again. So what are some of the other kind of uh, high 
highlights or terrain layouts that people need to watch out for, specific terrain pieces uh, that that every year people have questions about to kind of get ahead of the game. And then Brandon and Sean, in your experience, what were some of the, after Reese answers that question, uh, what were some of the things, uh, terrain layouts and games that you played that you really enjoyed or uh, any tips and tricks for people going to the, new to the LBO? Uh, so Reese first. Yeah. So as you noted, Pablo, <clears throat> obviously everyone's focusing on these uh, maps because the winner, the winner's path is usually what draws all the attention. But um, assuming that we have normal attrition and there's 800 people rolling dice to start the event, by the beginning of round four or the beginning of day two, there will only be 100 undefeated players left. So, you know, 75% or more than that, gosh, seven eighths of the field will be eliminated at that point, and they won't have to. They won't be playing on these tables ever again. Um, that said. We have a huge variety of table layouts. It's one of the things I'm proud of with our event is that they're all themed. They all match the mat that they go on. They're all painted pretty dang well, if I do say so myself. Um, and a lot of the other tables are, are kind of renowned at this point or infamous, depending on your <laughs> point of view, for having uh, lots of enclosed ruins. I I like playing the game that way. I prefer it. I think it's better for the game. And like I said, if we had them, we would have used them on these tables, but we just didn't. In a lot of our other table sets, there is few as four of them at the Las Vegas Open. The next most common uh, sets are urban. Uh, we have a lot of urban tables, which if you want to go to store.frontlinegiving.org, you can take a look at what they look like. And there's a combination of, of all kinds of you know urban style buildings, some open, some closed. And then Gothic is a really common one after that. You can go check that out. And that has the very, very large cathedral that goes in the middle of the table. It's huge. A knight can literally walk into it. <laughs> very cool looking building. It really impacts the way you play the game. Um, it's a gigantic enclosed ruin. And then um, the next most common, I believe, after that is Orc, the Orc set. And there's a couple derivations of that. But um, you want to go and look at basically the ITC terrain sets because odds are you will be playing on those more than you will be playing on these. So you want to take a look at those and prepare yourself for that. Have units that can go into enclosed ruins or deal with them. Um, have units that, that are flexible. Uh, you don't want to be too one-dimensional. If you bring a flyer list, because you look at these tables and you're licking your chops, which I agree with Brandon, they are flyer armies will do well on those. And then rounds one and two, you find yourself on box land, well, you're going to be really <laughs> sad. So don't count, don't put all your eggs in the basket of these tables because depending on how many people we get, you may not even be on one until day two, even if you win all your games. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one other one other note that you didn't mention was the Necron terrain. Uh, we have a ton of those. Thank you for bringing yeah, that up. Yeah, a ton of them. Mm -hmm. And they're actually... Uh, they're probably the most. Whoa, 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 whoa! You mean robot city? I'm so, excuse me. I'm uh, so sorry. We don't. I would have... never dream of infringing on another company's IP in such a dastardly manner. Excuse me. I apologize. <laughs> uh, robot, the robot city, the robot-inspired terrain, um, which is uh, kind of dark tones, really cool looking. You'll know it immediately when you see it. Uh, it's like you're going to a rave on a 40k table. It's awesome. <laughs> it's Tron. <laughs> it's the Tron table. Yeah. Uh, so w w with those. Uh, there are a lot of uh, tables with those on there, and they're also specifically 
Um, you don't want to pull. You don't want to pull Mike Brandt uh, and Spider-Man inventory in uh, terrain pieces that aren't ruins that could be enclosed ruins. Um, so there actually we actually have episodes on this in Chapter Tactics from like exactly one year ago uh, where we talk about uh, enclosed ruins, what is and isn't an enclosed ruins. And uh, so if you have any questions about terrain, if you and your opponent, if you feel like something's unfair and if you think like maybe there shouldn't be one smash captain hiding in a little tiny box, you know, on an objective or something, always call a judge. Uh, all of the judges are now, especially the senior judges, are all knowledgeable in all of the Las Vegas open terrain. And, uh, you know, because there's so much variety, th- there might be some, uh, uh, like, interpretation issues uh, and that judges can clear it for you right away. We, we define um, a lot of the terrain in, in the um, guidelines article that shows, like, basically for something to be an enclosed ruin, it has to have windows and or doors. If it does not, treat it as impassable. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, pretty easy, but, but some of those, you know, some of the doors don't look like doors. You know, there might be some, maybe uh, you, you uh, choose to have a pillar identify as a door. <laughs> you know uh so always 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 call a judge uh we have tons of them put them to work so that you know they can help you guys out and make the games easier yeah just to find the terrain before the game begins with your opponent and be reasonable that's it's re- it's actually relatively easy but just don't forget to take that step all yeah, right it's pretty important uh okay so let's go ahead and um, move on to uh sean and brandon on your experience, both of you have gone to plenty of LVO LVOs now at this point. Uh, I believe you both have four notched on your belt each. Yes, I believe that's correct. Or maybe this will be your fourth one. This will be my fifth. Yeah. So this. So then you both yeah. have four. Wow, that is that is nuts. Uh, in your experience, obviously the train has evolved. However, uh, I am proud to say that over the past couple of years, it has a evolved and changed less and we've only added more of the high quality terrain that uh we you know reese is mostly you know added uh so now that you have a few years of roughly the same kind of terrain at the las vegas open what are some tips and tricks that you would give people who are new to the lvo or new to the itc terrain uh that might be able to give them a little bit of an edge or any of that stuff uh either one of you can start um, I think the the easy mistake to make and the thing that uh, I would caution people who are coming to it against is you will see a lot of these pictures of kind of like sample layouts and you'll hear a lot of talk about, you know, magic boxes and these fixed layouts and all this sort of thing. Uh, but remember that there are so many tables there with a lot of variance in the types of terrain you'll see that just like in any other tournament, you need to be ready for different kinds of layouts that you may not be expecting. Don't just assume that you're going to see magic boxes on every table. and Don't assume that you're going to be playing on these fixed layouts. Um, there's a lot of variability in the, the LVO tables, even within the sort of like different patterns that Reese and the crew have set up there. Um, and that can catch you off guard just like it can at any other tournament with more, we'll say, arbitrary terrain. Um, so just like anything else, be ready for different setups. Okay. Uh, Brandon, is there anything else you want to add to that? Um, 
I totally agree with the be ready for different terrain setups. Also, don't be afraid to move the terrain around if it looks like someone just smushed all the terrain to half the board to move so that they can fit their army case on the table. Yeah. Because uh, that happens frequently at these events. And you know what? If you're just so confused about what the terrain looked like, you and your opponent just can't figure it out, call a judge. Call them early. Um, also, be aware that um, some of the terrain has special rules. So, for example, craters and forests are minus two to charge through. So, know your terrain rules. In summary, um, if any part of your model is touching terrain, it is in the terrain. And all terrain, if you are touching it, gives you a cover save if you are 50% or more obscured. Doesn't matter what kind of model you are. If you are infantry, specifically ruins, rubble, and forests give you a cover save no matter how obscured you are. So, don't forget, even just touching a, a crate as a piece of terrain, even though it's a hill... Gives you a cover save if you are obscured 50%. Yeah. And as much as people... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Reese. I was going to say, to Brandon's point, the way we set up the terrain now is that we put all the same layouts, like all the same types of tables next to each other. So if you are confused, just look to your left or to your right, and you'll see a table that's identical to the one you're playing on in the 40K Champs. In the narrative, it, it, all the tables are unique, wonderful creations. But um, in the champs, we put them in a row. So it's like all the org terrain is in a row. All the robot city terrain is in a row. All the uh, uh, gothic terrain is in a row. So don't, all you have to do is usually look to the next table, and you can see, oh, that's how it's supposed to be, reasonably. That's great. Mm -hmm. And then last thing, don't forget, get a good night's sleep. Drink plenty of water, and pack some salty snacks if you can go to the lunchroom and snack on them. And for more yeah, info, no outside food and beverages. Oh yeah, <laughs> don't don't pack salty snacks. Eat them, consume them beforehand. If you see them, if I see them, I will eat them. You do not yes. want to get in the way of the rush. You, you can have them in your room. You can have them one step outside Just of the con the conventional. Do not eat them in the conventional. Yes, please don't. We get in trouble if you do. All right, so. Let's go ahead and talk real quick. 10 seconds, 15 seconds top tops. What is your favorite terrain layout or terrain table at the LVO in the past or, or that you're looking forward to at this LVO? Sean. I've always kind of enjoyed the orc terrain. I think it looks good. I know that it is not excessively difficult to put together, having done some of it myself. Um, it's very thematic to 40k and recognizable, and it works relatively well to play on. So I feel like the orc terrain always comes across to me as kind of like a good mix of all of the things you want out of terrain pieces. Good answer, Brandon. Um... I am going to go with the over-centralizing Necron terrain as my favorite. <laughs> Robot what, City terrain. When you need to hide 90 guardsmen out of line of sight, Necron City or Robot City delivers. <laughs> <laughs> Come on down to Robot City See? where your guardsmen hide and the girls are pretty. You got it. <laughs> pretty good. I thought you were going to do favorite? a Spatula City reference. <laughs> I was trying to get a binary joke in there, but I'm not that clever. Um, <laughs> I like field base the best because it's easy to build, easy to paint, and it all fits in one bin. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's and it also point. gives you good coverage and, you know, a nice mix of open and enclosed ruins. Uh, that's my favorite. Well, I like the GW stream. I'm shilling out 
GW. <laughs> I think all 500 tables should have Roman battle boards. That is the oh, hill. <laughs> Pablo, you don't even play charged, at LVO. <laughs> I How dare like you? $300, $400 a ticket that might, Dude. over two or three years, cover the cost of each table. <laughs> yeah. Also, Pablo, remember, you'd have to help set those tables oh, up. Man. You know, be honest, Reese. If GW Tomorrow sent us 400 tables, Realm of Battle tables, for free as prize, as support for the terrain, you wouldn't say no. I don't know, man. I know, I, I know of other events that politely decline GW terrain because it is such a bear to build it. Paint it. Like, one of the new ruins... And I know because I have I've done the math on this many times. It usually takes a new person to build one of the new ruins, four to six hours on their first try to build one. Yeah, one of them, and we're building a hundred to add to those tables, right? Like, yeah, but they're real pretty. Yeah, they are, but and they're expensive too, right? Like, if if it's so unrealistic to make a. a, a on a large scale, all GW terrain, unless you're GW or you get it like somehow at a, some sort of a deal. But like the labor involved in making those tables is ludicrous. And if you're paying for the labor, which we do, it, even if you got it for free, it's still super expensive. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> no realm of battle LVO dream for PD pop. That makes sense. No, just get on top table, my dude. It's easy. There you go. <laughs> Brandon's done it three times now. Yeah, like a, like a quarter of us have done it like every time we've gone. So like how hard can it be? <laughs> if you don't know, if you've never been craned, bro, you're not even, you're not in the top notch. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think that's it. Um, so we'll go ahead and go ahead and move over to the conclusion of the episode. Uh, and if you've listened to Chapter Jackers before... Uh, you would know that now is the time where we answer Patreon questions. If you haven't, if you sign up for our Patreon, uh, I do get to po- I do post out something on Facebook for patrons to ask questions that we answer live on the show. And if you're a lucky patron, you get you do get access to that. So let's go ahead and jump right into the Patreon questions. First question comes from Mr. Patron Joe. Uh, there are already theories floating around that LVO tables are going to be used to test potential new GW terrain rules. Can this be confirmed or denied? It, yeah, it can be confirmed or denied. Next question. Yeah, it's just <laughs> been denied. <laughs> uh, this was one of those. Uh, uh, I love how much power people think we have, Pablo. Uh, you know, it's like, you know, you've jumped the shark when because most people lie about having more influence and like clout than they actually do because they're trying to be cool. <laughs> but when you're when you're telling people that you have less and they think you're lying and you have more, you've gone through the twilight zone into a new realm <laughs> that is very strange and uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. It, it does make it does make podcasting sometimes difficult, you know. Uh, I imagine the one guy is already flying to his GW store right now speeding 120 miles an hour to tell them that Delvio is going to have 400 Roma battle tables. <laughs> although, to although on a podcast. Uh, I don't want to, I don't want to name drop or, or anything like that. But um, some of the the 40k developers will be there playing the game with you. Um, I'll I won't say any more than that. So I'll give away the who that it is, or the who they are. Uh-oh. I should say. 
But so just be mindful of who you might be playing. It might be someone that's literally writing the rules of the game. Yeah. So, so <laughs> and be getting them wrong. Yeah. If if you yeah, well, who's who? Come on, Sean. If you and I were the lead developers of 40k, we would still get rules wrong. At I've the table. I've never made a rules mistake in my entire life. I'm sorry. I'm I'm a perfect machine. <laughs> So, um, and, and I don't think that's a, I don't think that's uncommon knowledge. Uh, it is widely known that GW at the super majors, the ones that they attend, uh, that they do kind of, you know, keep a beat on things, keep an eye on games played. Uh, and I imagine it's only natural, right? That they, they can't just sit around, you know, in Vegas forever. I guess they could, <laughs> you know, eventually they're going to have to look at one game of 40k played. Um, so they they want to see how people play the game in reality, right? Like, yeah. mm-hmm. it's it's super good for the game, right? Like, you want these people coming and getting down in the trenches, and and seeing how the game is played in reality. It's it's got to be amazingly good feedback as a game developer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this patron uh, wishes that there were more ruins magic boxes because uh, they feel like it, the terrain is open and hard to hide vehicles and monsters on the top 100 tra- tables. So not a question, just a statement. Then I my answer it... to that is you can hide probably one or two things for sure, just because of the way the L's are positioned. Everything else, if your opponent moves to a part of the board, they're going to be able to see it. So... You're going to have to control parts of the board that can see your juicy parts of your army if you want to keep it alive, which is called, you're going to need to leave your deployment zone, damn it. So yeah. that's what you're trying to be encouraged to do. you telling me I can't sit and shoot and win? What is this? Well, you can, but your opponent will be able to see you. <laughs> and score all the objectives. <laughs> I, I kind of think... I kind of think uh, I might be in the minority here, uh, and I'm a knight. This is coming from someone who plays knights regularly. Uh, I kind of think having terrain that completely blocks knights from line of sight uh, is not great for the game. Uh, they're already large and big things, um, and though I, I imagine a competitive player will still stomp me into the ground if I were to play them and have all line of sight knight blocking terrain. Um, I think that for optics and for playing new players, I think it's like it's really not very good um, because with those players, it already does feel, you know, monumental having to deal with a Magnus, a Morty, a Knight, or something. And then on top of that, not being able to shoot it, uh, it seems a little... Agreed. Uh, and the thing yeah. is, the bigger models in the game that people are taking tend to have invulnerable saves, yeah. which is kind of like taking your cover with you. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you're big and you're impossible to hide, but in return, you're big and no one can hide from you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, and this actually kind of ties into the next question, which is uh, Patron Lawrence wants to know, how important do you think it is to have terrain on a, on or near the center of the table that is tall enough to block line of sight to a knight or Mertarian magnetized models? From a balanced perspective, is it better that all units have somewhere to hide, or should certain units always be visible? Certain units should always be visible. Definitely. Like, you, you cannot have... If you have a situation where you can count on always hiding Morty, he becomes the best model in the game, right? Like, you get super juiced up, you, you move into position, you warp time, slaughter whatever you... T- it's, it's, it, that, that's absurdity, right? Like, that's not a fun game. Well, uh, you want... You, there has to be a give and a take for these models. Infantry should be the easiest thing to hide, and big giant things and flyers should never be able to hide 
in my opinion, in a normal yeah. standardized match play table. Well, yeah, you take that to like the sort of like the logical extremes of it and like, okay, you should always be able to hide a model. Okay, because I can hide my flyer every game. I can hide my Warhound Titan every game. I can hide my Reaver Titan every game. That's that's ridiculous. There's some models shouldn't be able to hide. Um, and we can argue about where you draw that line, but I think that saying knights probably shouldn't be able to hide is a relatively easy line to draw. Yeah, they should be able to get a cover save, I think. But being completely out of line of sight, it's just... And especially if you know you're going to get that every single time, regardless of deployment, then the, the, the equation of the game gets simplified far too much. And then you start to get a sameness, right? That's why variety is important because you want to present an equation to the player that is relatively unique game in and game out, not like wildly divergent from game to game. You want to be able to count on some tactics being applicable in every scenario or nearly every scenario, but you don't want it to be the exact same map, you know, like I've got my build strategy for Zerg down to, you know, clicks and seconds. That works in video games. It's not really good for, for a tabletop. Um, the game takes too long to play. It would be really horribly boring to watch. Um, I, I think you need to keep it fresh. And that way you can see someone display their tactical acumen, their strategic thinking, their ability to adapt. That's far more exciting in my opinion. Hmm. Yeah. All right, uh, let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Uh, patron Tim wants to know, is there any type of terrain top players use for specific tactics or when they see it on the table, they think, uh, for example, I can use this to get a surprise or intervention or some other uh, thing. So is there any pet pieces of terrain that you and uh, Sean look for, Brandon, uh, when you're playing on a table or or is it kind of just like, uh, just use what you got? Almost too many answers to that question. Yeah, this is a, it's a pretty open-ended yeah, question. Yeah, it's every piece of terrain can potentially be useful to you. You just need to remember what it is that it does and the ways you can take advantage of that with your specific army. Yeah, but yeah, there's there's way too many t potential tactics there. The biggest one that I'll mention just off the cuff is if you can find a piece of terrain in the middle of the board that blocks line of sight to your melee unit, take it. And then you control space and objectives just by existing in that building. You don't even need to leave. You'll just score more objectives because unless your opponent's throwing sacrificial units on the objectives, you're going to hop out and kill something important for the whole game. So keep mm -hmm. that yeah. in mind. I've always found that uh, King of the Hill is one of the least commonly taken um, uh, secondaries in the ITC. But I take it fairly frequently and I do exactly what you just said, Brandon. You put a unit in the middle of the table, like Bolgren is the perfect example, which you I know can relate to. And just having them be there and be just this like rock that's like very difficult to move, hard to hurt, and they're just scoring points. So it's like, they're gonna get four points if you don't do something about it. But if you do something about it, you risk a big loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, uh, and then final question, uh, patron Paul has a uh, question uh with the inclusion of the i deploy everything first i go first style of deployment will we ever see these initiative roles being phased out uh they kind of defeat the purpose of that deployment if you deploy to go first and a dice roll takes it away i agree paul but reese i agree i hate cz initiative i've hated it forever since it became a part of the game i think it's it's exciting and it's um fluky but for competitive play it's it's too big of a swing I think it serves no 
really meaningful tactical or strategic uh, purpose. It's like, oh, I have an 83% chance of going first. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> or it's like, oh, I play conservatively and I don't take advantage of first turn. And then I, you know, it's almost certainly not going to go my way. I think it's just, it's too much. And I, I sincerely hope it goes away the Dodo after playing at the LGT where they got rid of C's so much more fun. And the overwhelming response from the players at the event was don't put it back in the game. The thing yeah, I'll just... add to that race. Um, I think that I would agree with the, I deploy first, I go first style, just because there's a huge disadvantage to deploying your entire army first. But when it's I go, you go deployment, where it's alternating, so you only get a plus one, um, there could be an argument for keeping C's just to bias the odds of going first if first decides the matchup closer to 50%, 50%. Um, yeah, that's a good point. At the LGT, it was all uh, deploy first, go first. So that, that's a good uh, distinction to make. That's also so confusing, right? Like, okay, yeah. I, get to, I have to deploy first, go first here, but then next next turn it's, uh, you know, I'll deploy first. And then on top of that, you don't seize during some missions, but you do during others. Uh, it does get a little conf- I mean, maybe I'm just simple-minded. <laughs> yeah, seize is kind of like, I think GW is left into the game because it is very dramatic, um not necessarily because it is good for the game um i don't hate it as much as a lot of people do i think it's almost irrelevant on the i go you go deployments um but it's it's a relic of the game and it's one of these things that has a weird kind of niche because of the one player takes their entire turn, other player takes their entire turn system that the game functions under. Uh, but I'm of the opinion that we'd be better off losing that and going more towards a, a kill team style alternating activations. That would be cool. but um, Yeah, that's in, a different game. The, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, God, the game takes so long now. If we had alternate unit activation, I think it would probably be even longer unless you went down in points significantly. Uh, that's another thing I think we should probably do, but that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right. Uh, that's it for the episode. That's all the Patreon questions. If you're interested, you can always head on over to chaptertactics.com slash Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash chaptertactics. Just reverse those. Uh, we give away something every month. This month I will be giving away a Forge World exclusive model. Last year I got my hands on Sanguinius and his exclusive base. Uh, and I gave that away to one lucky patron. Uh, this year I'm going to try and do the same exact thing. I'm trying to get into that Forge World booth early. I got some contacts. And uh, I don't know what the exclusive model will be this year. Uh, or if there even will be one. But I will get my hands on some sort of Forge World goodie. Uh, and I will be giving it away this month. And if you're a patron and you're interested in that, I am accepting ideas as well. All right. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in hearing from a little bit more uh, from Sean, Mr. Morgan, uh, where can they find you? Um. Well, we have uh, Finest Hour on hold right now because of, uh, well, real-life complications, basically. It turns out that several different people getting and losing jobs and moving and changing things is kind of put us on the back foot right here, but we're hoping to get it started up again in the near future. You can also find him on the Chapter Tactics Discord. Uh, I am yeah. completely a ghost, unfortunately. I just Discord <laughs> is just not a platform I use. However, Sean is certainly picking up the slack, so uh, you can check him out there. 
Uh, and then, uh, Reese, I'm sure everyone knows where to find you, uh, but why don't you pitch signals from the front line again? Because I think it's still <laughs> one of those criminally under-listened-to podcasts uh, just because of how much information relevant to people, especially competitive 40K players, we say on that episode or on that show. Uh, criminally under-listened-to podcast, buddy? Underrated. Under-listened to. Under- underrated by who uh, by everyone who doesn't <laughs> listen to everyone who's ever said signals is just an advertisement for frontline gaming products which sometimes it is but oh my you, you're fired <laughs> <laughs> no uh signals i was like our numbers aren't that far behind no no they're not at all brother i, I think they should yeah. be higher that's this is a compliment um yeah the uh uh, signals from the front lines every Wednesday podcast. Come and check us out. We do obviously talk about products that we sell, but that's not the whole point. It's a very topical, like what's going on in the hobby right now uh, uh, podcast. And current uh, current co-host is uh, needs to up his uh, presentation skills a little bit, Mr. Rhino, I think. But no, it's great to have you. But yeah, check us out. And then, of course, obviously, there's frontlinegaming.org where you can uh, come and read all kinds of fun stuff about games and whatnot but seriously if the itc affects you in any way listen to signals from the front line please that's just for my own sanity because i have a billion <laughs> questions asked every day that were answered on an episode of signals uh, so yeah that's we we talk about what's going on in the itc week by week so if you're interested in it you should definitely tune in right on uh <clears throat> and then brandon is there any plugs you want to give out um just that Team USA is selling neoprene objective markers, and if you want to oh, support yeah. Team USA, um, you can go to my Facebook because I just posted it, or you can search for Team America 2020 and uh, get them. The neoprene objectives are the size of the area of contesting for objectives, which means you don't need to use a tape measure, and uh, they are so great. I yeah. didn't know that they existed until recently, and I don't think I'm ever going to go back. And they're six inches in diameter then, right? Or I guess six inches plus an objective marker. They're three fun. inches outside of a poker chip. So they're exactly the size of a zone of contesting for an objective. As right long on. as your model overlaps the neoprene, then you are contesting that objective. Yeah, it's such a cool idea. Uh, and I absolutely back, even though I've never actually physically played with one, I 100% back that idea. Also, support your local, you know, 40k etc us team if you're a member of the us also if you're not i know there's a lot of international podcasters support the 40k us east ec team anyways <laughs> because i said so yeah i mean it's gonna be tough carrying brandon on my back on the etc team this year oh, but i've been doing some squats i feel confident <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for listening. You are all always the best listeners in the world. And of course, have a good one.